Oh, look, it's Ohio Republican Governor Mike DeWine and his lovely wife, Fran. Everywhere we go, voters tell us they're confused about issue one. Really? So Fran and I have carefully studied it. Have you? Issue one would allow an abortion at any time during a pregnancy. Mm, not true. And it would deny parents the right to be involved when their daughter is making the most important decision no, of her no, life. No, wouldn't. No. I know Ohioans are divided on the issue of abortion, mm. but whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, yeah. Issue one is just not right for Ohio. Oh, really? Issue one just goes too far. Does it? Too far? Like when your husband signed a six-week abortion ban without exceptions for rape or incest? Was that too far, friend? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Great to have you with us. Well, with, <clears throat> with everything going on, with all of the various nightmares all happening at once, you... And there are plenty of uh, them. Yes, there are. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Uh, I just noticed that you said uh, you spoke up after I used the word nightmares. And yes. I don't want people to closely, you know, relate you to <laughs> ni- anyway, even on Halloween. Thanks. Anyway, with all of that, you would be forgiven if you had not realized that next Tuesday is Election Day. Now, not everywhere. Don't get too alarmed. But in a whole bunch of places, a, a number of states with critical contests on the ballot. It is not a midterm or a presidential year, but what is described as an off-year election. And uh, voters in Kentucky and Mississippi and New Jersey, Ohio, Virginia, and other states all face important state or local elections, which will be closely watched for what they may tell us or not tell us as America heads into another presidential election year next year. As Daily Coast noted last night, in blood-red Kentucky, for example, 
Republicans are struggling to gain traction in the governor's race, where popular Democratic incumbent Andy Bashir remains the favorite. Indeed, after months of trying to make, quote, the radical transgender agenda a thing, <laughs> uh, the Republican candidate is now claiming, well, Andy Bashir is a nice enough guy. Because as Coase posits, attacking transgender people remains an electoral loser for Republicans, even in one of the most evangelical states in the country. Well, we will see if that turns out to be the case. And by the way, we'll have more on so-called blood-red Kentucky a little bit later in the show and Desi Doyen's latest Green News report. Yeah. Where a popular Democratic governor is not the only sign of a blue moon over Kentucky these days. <laughs> Now, That's a good teaser. Thank you very much. There are a few states. Uh, there, there are few states that are actually farther to the right than Mississippi, according to Coase. Yet infighting among Magnolia State Republicans could offer Democrat Brandon Presley an opening for a surprise victory in the governor's race. That seems to me. Like a bit of a stretch, but you know what? We have seen some surprise results in elections over the past year, particularly following the U.S. Supreme Court taking away the constitutional right to reproductive freedoms in its Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. In Pennsylvania, an important seat on the state Supreme Court hangs in the balance next week. In Virginia, every seat in the state legislature is on the ballot. Democrats can retake control of the state House of Delegates by picking up just a handful of seats after losing control two years ago, along with the ascension of the Commonwealth's Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin. We will be joined shortly by a former member of the Virginia House of Delegates to discuss the stakes on the ballot for the Commonwealth and the nation on Tuesday in Virginia and in Ohio. A state constitutional initiative to guarantee a right to abortion is on the ballot. And that is a big one. When polls close on November 7, Ohio will either become the latest state to enshrine reproductive freedoms into its constitution or will enter a period of uncertainty as CNN describes it, as the state Supreme Court considers allowing a currently frozen six-week abortion ban that was adopted by the state's gerrymandered state legislature and signed by Governor Mike DeWine. You heard him speaking there at the top of the show with his delightful wife, Fran. That was adopted by the state even before Roe v. Wade was overturned. So uh, the state Supreme Court is considering whether that uh, can be enforced or not. So a lot hangs in the ballot in the in the balance on the ballot. <laughs> well, true. Uh, true. Ohio's issue one could drastically reshape reproductive rights in a state where Republican leaders have also proposed legislation to completely ban abortion post Roe. But as CNN reports, it will also serve as a bellwether for 2024, suggesting what strategies and messages will resonate most with voters during a general election in which Democrats will make abortion a key issue. Last year, voters in Michigan 
Vermont, and California all voted to add abortion protections to their state constitutions, while Kansas, Kentucky, and Montana voters rejected efforts to roll access back. Yes, even in those so-called red states. Abortion advocates are working to get initiatives on to the 2024 ballot in states including Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, Florida, South Dakota, Nebraska, and my old home state of Missouri. The battles over those measures for next year's ballot is already underway. In late September, for example, a Missouri judge tossed Republican-written ballot summary language that described several proposed constitutional amendments as allowing, quote, dangerous and unregulated abortions until live birth. (laughs) The Missouri judge rewrote the ballot summary to describe the language more accurately as establishing, quote, the right to make decisions about reproductive health care, including abortion and contraception, unquote, as well as undoing the state's current almost total ban on abortions in Missouri. The office of Missouri's Republican Secretary of State, Jay Ashcroft, which wrote the misleading summaries, appealed the lower court ruling. That appeal is being heard this week. Ashcroft's description asks voters whether they want to, quote, allow for dangerous, unregulated, and unrestricted abortions from conception to live birth without requiring a medical license or potentially being subject to medical malpractice. Well, that sounds even-handed for the ballot, doesn't it? (laughs) It's a shame that Republicans have to lie about what they want in order to trick voters. Ashcroft, of course, is running for governor in 2024 as this ballot proposition will come before voters, so he might be particularly sensitive to it. Meanwhile, in Ohio, abortion rights advocates just defeated a ballot initiative in a special election that was called by Republicans back in August that would have raised the threshold to amend the state constitution from a simple majority, as it's been for hundreds of years, to 60 percent of voters needed to enact a constitutional amendment. Now, they rushed that thankfully losing measure onto a single issue special election back in August. Again, trying to trick voters. After they had banned special elections in August, by the way, and then weeks later, oh, you know what, let's have a special election in August. So they put that before uh, voters in August because they knew that abortion proponents would, in fact, be including a popular initiative to allow reproductive freedoms in the upcoming November elections. One week from today. Now, after urging voters to vote no on the August Amendment, which was also called Issue 1, proponents of reproductive freedoms are now urging people to vote yes on the November version of Issue 1, a switch that has caused some confusion with voters. Confusion seems to be the best hope for those uh, anti-choice, anti-freedom people at this point. Ohio's Republican state officials and its right-wing state Supreme Court are working very hard, it seems, to keep Buckeye State voters as confused and or disinformed as possible in advance of Tuesday's Election Day. Just days before 
that court in Missouri actually did the right thing for voters in late September. Just days before that, the politicized Supreme Court in Ohio did decidedly the wrong thing. As The Guardian reported at the time, an upcoming ballot referendum in Ohio will include language that describes a fetus as a, quote, unborn child in a disappointing loss for abortion rights activists in the state who had sued to stop voters from seeing language that they say is misleading. The outcome of the vote could not only determine the future of Ohio's six-week abortion ban, which is currently frozen pending litigation, but also for the Midwest writ large. The state has become one of the few in the region to still permit abortions since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. So a lot of people are traveling to uh, to Ohio Uh, when they need reproductive services if they live in a state, you know, like Missouri, that bans them, that puts the government in between a doctor and uh, their patients. Weeks after Republicans lost that August special elections to make initiatives more difficult to be adopted by voters, the Ohio Ballot Board met to decide what language should show up on voters' ballots regarding the November issue one. Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights proposed using the actual texts of the actual amendment that people were going to be voting on, which seems fair enough. It's a it's a fairly brief text. It includes guarantees that the state cannot interfere with citizens' rights to contraception, miscarriage care and abortion up until the point of viability, which is generally pegged to the end of the second trimester or about 24 weeks of pregnancy, largely as Roe v. Wade had guaranteed for 50 years across the entire country. However, by a three to two vote, the Republican dominated Ohio ballot board voted to adopt a summary of the amendment instead, a summary that was, in fact, longer than the actual text of the amendment. And this summary claimed the amendment would regulate, quote, citizens of the state. In fact, the measure allows the citizenry to regulate the state government, not the other way around, as they had uh, as the Ohio uh, ballot board had had summarized. Again, they have to lie. Apparently, Republicans feel like they must lie to voters in order to get what they want. And the proposed summary repeatedly substituted the term unborn child instead of the word fetus and says that the amendment would, quote, always allow an unborn child to be aborted at any stage of pregnancy, regardless of viability. Which is a lie, a flat-out lie. Days after the Ohio ballot board vote, Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights sued. They charged the board's language, quote, aims improperly to mislead Ohioans and persuade them to oppose the amendment. The coalition insisted on instead showing the voters the entirety of the proposed amendment. But the Republican-dominated Ohio Supreme Court ruled that the proposed summary... Well, it was misleading, but only in part, only because it used the language citizens of the state when describing who would be regulated. The high court ordered the Ohio ballot board 
to rewrite the summary and accurately reflect the fact that abortion that the uh, abortion referendum would actually regulate the state government rather than regulating everyday Ohioans. However, the term unborn child remains in the ballot language that is now before Ohio voters right now on whether to enshrine the right to abortion protections into the state's constitution and state officials are still busy trying to confuse voters about the amendment. You heard, of course, Republican Governor Mike DeWine at the top of the show talking about just, gosh, how how extreme this measure is. Lying about it. Extreme measure that protects people's rights. Now, unlike Michigan which had a Democratic governor, secretary of state, and attorney general when it passed a very similar abortion rights amendment last year, Ohio Republicans have a have trifecta control of the entire state government. They run the offices of attorney general and secretary of state and governor, and those leaders have been deeply involved in trying to defeat the measure, even if, as Desi says, they have to lie to voters to do it. Governor Mike DeWine, who won re-election last year by 25 points against a Democrat who supported abortion access, well, he cut that TV ad urging Ohioans to vote no on issue one, which he said is just too extreme for the state. DeWine said in an interview with CNN, quote, people have very differing views about at what point in a pregnancy abortion should be permitted. But a very small number of people think that abortion should be permitted at all times up until the time of birth. They have just grossly overreached, the governor said. Once again, misleadingly. And and by the way, that from a guy, he's the one who signed the six-week ban on abortion. Six weeks, which is before many women even know that they are pregnant. And it has no uh, exceptions for rape or incest. Who's talking about going too far? I know. It's, it's, it's well, it's Ohio. It's Ohio. Up is down, left is right, black is white, day and you is gotta, night. you got to lie to get what you want if in, you're a Republican. In fact, issue one... Uh, actually does allow abortion to be prohibited after fetal viability. However, there are no circumstances under which abortion can be prohibited if the presiding physician deems it, quote, necessary to protect the pregnant patient's life or health. So I guess that's where they go too far. I guess where, uh, uh, you know, a, a physician can allow an abortion to move forward if it is, quote, necessary to protect the pregnant patient's life or health. That's outrageous. Ohio's anti-choicers, I guess, prefer that the government make medical decisions uh, over doctors and their patients. Because that's what they seem to be upset about. That's what they seem to be pushing for. That seems to be exactly what they want. The government should make those decisions. Man, have we come a long way since 2010. Remember the fight for Obamacare? How they needed to keep the government out of uh, medical decisions between a patient and a doctor? Which, of course, was also a lie. Apparently, because they can't wait to have big government uh, making these decisions for, for doctors and patients. In any event, both Michigan and Ohio, abortion opponents argue the constitutional amendments would also eliminate 
parental consent laws in the state. That's not in the amendment, and so far that has not come to pass in Michigan as uh, as they had uh, argued last year. I don't think anyone is uh, talking about that. At least it hasn't so far. But what has come to pass is that when Ohio's six-week ban, which, again, included no exceptions for rape or incest victims, which was signed by Mike DeWine, when that was in effect... For a few short months, from June until September of 2022, before it was then paused by a court, among those affected, as you may remember, was a 10-year-old rape victim. She couldn't get an abortion in Ohio because of this law, this extreme law signed by Mike DeWine. She had to travel to Indiana to get an abortion. Which, by the way, she could not do now because... Indiana has banned abortion as well. So that six-week ban signed by Governor DeWine, who now warns about, uh, you know, uh, guaranteed rights as being too extreme, well, that is now being considered by the very same state Supreme Court that allowed unborn child in the issue one ballot summary now before voters instead of the word fetus. So if issue one is adopted on Tuesday, that should be the end of Republican attempts to ban abortion rights in the state, whether entirely or at six weeks, without exceptions for rape or incest. Polling suggests that issue one should win by a landslide on Tuesday, but you know what? It's Ohio. So we will see if the confusing language on the ballot does its trick or the confusing uh, ads that they're putting out or, yes, of course, uh, vote suppression. Yes. Ohio, they are very good at it. So we'll see. We'll see if there are any other tricks up the sleeves of Ohio's Republican officials because they have proven to have many over the years. But, of course, the Republicans newly discovered favorite phrase, parental rights, which, by the way, only seem to apply to specific parental rights that Republicans agree with, not, you know, to parental rights for parents to decide, for example, if their children may be allowed to use doctor-physician-prescribed gender care treatments. We don't want to let parents decide about that. But in any event, that newly discovered so-called parental rights movement uh, was said to have been instrumental two years ago during off-year elections back in 2021 when Virginia's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, was said to have been elected based on his voter-friendly campaign for parental rights. So will that scheme work a second time in the great Commonwealth of Virginia on Tuesday? Former Virginia State Delegate Mark Levine joins us next to discuss what we can expect in that bellwether election in that bellwether state when the entire state legislature in Virginia will be up for election. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. 
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As the Washington Post reported on Sunday, Virginia's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin's elections team, has admitted in the run-up to Tuesday's pivotal General Assembly elections when the entire state legislature will be on the ballot, along with many local government races, that it removed. Nearly 3,400 qualified voters from the state's rolls, far higher than the administration's previous estimate of 270 otherwise qualified voters that they had removed from the state's rolls. Elections officials under Youngkin acknowledged what it called the mistaken removal of about 3,400 voters in a news release on Friday, five weeks after early voting began for November 7 General Assembly elections. The outcome will determine, among other things, the potential viability of Youngkin's last-minute 2024 presidential prospects and the fate of his so-called conservative legislative agenda, which includes banning most abortions after 15 weeks. The news release claimed that the local registrars had already reinstated all but, quote, approximately 100 of the voters, all of whom had been convicted of felonies, had their voting rights restored thereafter, but then went on to violate the terms of their probation. The state's computer software had erroneously counted the probation violations as new felonies that would have legally disqualified them from voting instead of mere probation violations, which under Virginia law do not. Administration officials were initially dismissive of the problems when public radio station VPM first identified it in September. Then in early October, the state announced that about 270 voters had been mistakenly removed. Now the 3,400 figure has heightened concerns Although that number represents a tiny fraction of the state's nearly six million registered voters, control of the state House and Senate could come down to a handful of very tight races. Virginia is one of a handful of states that still limits voting access for a felony conviction. The Commonwealth permanently disenfranchises those guilty of violent or nonviolent felonies unless the governor personally restores their civil rights. Youngkin's three immediate predecessors, one Republican and two Democrats, each took steps to automatically restore rights in at least some cases once their sentences were complete. Youngkin, on the other hand, has reverted to a stricter policy requiring each person to file an application that the administration considers on a case-by-case basis with no publicly disclosed criteria. In other words, it's up to Glenn. Youngkin's elections team has drawn scrutiny for other problems, including major backlogs in processing motor voter registrations back in October of 2022, just ahead of midterm congressional races last year. The elections department belatedly sent two batches of motor voter registration applications to local registrars for last-minute processing. Last minute. 107,000 in the first batch, 149,000 in the second. In May, Youngkin pulled Virginia out of the Electronic Registration Information Center, known as ERIC, a data-sharing group that red and blue states alike had relied on for the past decade to keep voter rolls updated 
before Republican election deniers made the group the focus of criticism, even though it actually helps to prevent people from voting unlawfully in more than one state. Virginia had been a founding member of the group under Republican Governor Bob McDonnell, but once Donald Trump's Stop the Steelers decided they were against the Eric system, well, Yunkin went along and he pulled Virginia out of it. After all, Virginia governors cannot run for a second consecutive term, and there has been much buzz that Yunkin has presidential ambitions. A strong showing for Republicans in the state next week, according to the Post, would turn him into an instant but last-minute contender in the crowded 2024 presidential field for the GOP. Now, as we noted earlier, after trending blue in recent years, Virginia Democrats lost their majority in the state House of Delegates back in 2021, along with the election of Youngkin. It would uh, require a pickup of just a handful of seats, however, on Tuesday for Democrats to regain that majority. At the same time, Democrats currently have only a two-seat majority in the state Senate. That has helped them to block much of Youngkin's right-wing agenda. If Republicans can gain the majority there while holding the House of Delegates, it could give Youngkin the support needed to enact restrictions on abortion. Uh, the uh, further complicating the matter is the fact that newly drawn legislative maps in the state have scrambled the uh, state of play in both the House of Delegates, where elected representatives hold uh, elections uh, after two year terms, as well as the state Senate, where lawmakers serve for four years. Regardless of whom the voters ultimately choose, a historic level of turnover is virtually guaranteed. The new maps created many open seats and doubled or tripled up lawmakers in other districts, prompting a slew of retirements from longtime legislators, as well as bitter races between incumbents, sometimes from the same party. So, yeah, plenty at stake in Virginia next week, which always sort of uh, sort of sneaks up on the rest of the nation just before a presidential election year as a helpful or terrifying bellwether of what may come in the following year. Joining us now for his read on the state of play in Virginia is our old friend Mark Levine, longtime progressive radio host and former three-term, if my math is uh, correct, three-term Democratic... Oh, thank you. Three-term Democratic member of the Virginia House of Delegates from Virginia's 45th district, representing parts of Alexandria, Arlington, and Fairfax County. Oh, Delegate Levine, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me. It seems like it's a Virginia election tradition that I go on your show. Yes, well, every few Virginia election years, apparently. <laughs> uh, as noted, uh, Mark, uh, during the off-year elections, you know, Virginia kind of sneaks up on the rest of the nation as a bellwether. But and and of course, we've got a presidential election coming up next year. Why does Virginia still have off year elections anyway? Was was that originally <laughs> was that meant, as I'm guessing, to essentially suppress the vote in Virginia, Mark? Well, it actually has a long storied history. I, I you know, I, I might remind you that the Virginia House of Delegates, which used to be known as the House of Burgesses, is the oldest elected body in the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So Virginia predates the United States by more than a century. And uh, we had these elections. And then, I don't know, the U.S. decided to go on the even years. And so we never really caught up. But but the 
the point remains that we could change our constitution. I've advocated for this, uh-huh. change our constitution and join the rest of the country. And I do think that Republicans tend to not want to do that because it does depress election turnout. So, you know, we did have 200 odd years to catch up and we haven't. So I guess we're a little late, but I would say better late than never. I do think we should join the rest of the country. But it turns out it's sort of a historical anomaly that, that we are the way we are. Uh, well, I guess so. And uh, the way the maps have been so wildly redrawn this year, maybe maybe you guys are going through enough. The The House is controlled there by uh, Republicans currently, the Senate by Democrats. Uh, both chambers, it seems to me, are now close enough that they could flip either way. What What's your That's general correct. sense of of how Virginia is moving. It was trending blue in recent years. Then it took a bit of a right turn back in 21 uh, when when I guess the GOP won back the House that year, along with Youngkin's victory. So what's your read as we go into the Tuesday election? So I have long argued that Virginia is an indigo state, which means it's mostly purple with a tinge of blue. So I do think that on average, we're going to very, very closely Mm -hmm. vote Democratic. Uh, But we have a range, and we have a range from maybe plus two or three Republican to plus eight or nine Democratic. It could fall anywhere in that range. Now, what happened Unfortunately, in 21, is, uh, is, is Youngkin beat Terry McAuliffe by mm-hmm. two points, mm-hmm. and they got uh, the House by two seats. So it, it was very close. And, and unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on the year, mm-hmm. Virginia really is a very good bellwether for the United States. Mm-hmm. If you note, uh, the same year we lost our House in 21, barely, the Republicans um, – gained the House uh, of Representatives, barely. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, and, and then if you just go back and you look at in, 19, in 2019, we had a, a strong wave of Democrats. 2020 was a, was a good year for Democrats. Uh, 2017 was a good year for Democrats in Virginia. 2018 was a good uh, for Democrats nationwide. You can basically go back, and, and Virginia really is an excellent bellwether, whether it's close. Because I would argue the, the nation is an indigo nation. Mm. In other words, purple, mm-hmm. but ever so slightly blue. And um, that's that's where we are. So it really could go either way. But um, I do think that, you know, if you flip a coin, it will land on Democratic 52 percent of the time or so. Well, uh, as long as it's a a bellwether, there has been some talk. And and frankly, I'm not sure I'm buying it. But there's been some talk that the the fight over abortion rights, that that things are waning a bit, uh, that it's waning as an animating force for voters after last year's overturning of Roe v. Wade. How much have abortion rights played into the campaign in Virginia so far this year? And and what effect do you think they're going to have on Tuesday? Well, as someone who lives in Virginia and watches TV, I can tell you that virtually every Democratic Party ad mentions abortion. Mm. So certainly our candidates think it's a waning issue. Uh, It's virtually every single ad mentions. They might say MAGA extremist. They might say election denier. But they always get in there, uh, you know, would would ban abortion. Mm. So I think it's an animating force. You know, it has Mm. certainly worked in places like, as you know, Kansas and and, and Ohio and, and, and many other red states. The real question, though, is this. In the states where it's worked, they've been conservative states where abortion was banned. Women knew in those states that their rights had been taken away and they wanted to restore them. And so, yes, there was heavy turnout in these red states to Mm. restore a woman's right to choose. The problem is, it's a good thing. The good thing is that in Virginia, we have not banned abortion because we used to have a Democratic legislature. We, we, We have very strong abortion rights. The question is whether women realize, I hope they do, I think they do, but that their rights can be taken away, mm-hmm. uh, as in neighboring states that, that, that border us. I think they know that, but, but it really hasn't been tested in a blue state. It's been, you know, been tested in these red states. So 
I hope people realize and get to the polls, but I have to say this as, as someone who's you know monitored Virginia elections for many years, our presidential turnout is like 75%. Mm-hmm. Our off-year elections, whether it's the, the – you know, we vote every year, right? Mm-hmm. So the midterms, the, the, the U.S. midterms and the governor's race, which is um, a year after the presidential election, they get about 45% turnout. This race is called the off-off elections, and it's the lowest turnout, and only about 23% of Virginians show up. So what that means is it's whoever's angrier, right? I mean, that's who shows up. Are the MAGA Republicans angrier, or are progressive Democrats angrier? And I don't know. I would think abortion's very motivating. Um, I can tell you that the Republicans, they're all their um, ads seem to focus on crime. They seem to want to blame Democrats for crime, even though crime isn't really up now. But that's okay. They don't need that doesn't need to be. They can pretend one case of one criminal, usually with a black face, who did something horrible and somehow blame it on whatever delegate or senator is running. So that's their take. Our take is a woman's right to choose. And every now and then you see other issues like guns uh, come into play. I haven't heard hardly anything on taxes or schools. Schools was a really big issue two years ago, but that was in the COVID era. Um, it, it abortion, it'll be a real test because that's mostly what Democrats are running. Well, that's what I, that's what I wanted to ask because I think when we last spoke, Mark Levine, it was I, I think it was 2019. I think it was. That was your, a big year for us. You brought us luck, Brad. I well, hope our speaking brings us luck again. I, well, I hope so if because only talked to me in 21, we would have won that race. You I, know that. I apologize. I've been meaning to apologize <laughs> for that. But at the time, yeah, you were, you guys were all excited because you had yes. uh, you were just uh, taking over both uh, uh, both chambers of the house. You had a whole bunch of things on the and a agenda. Democratic governor, Democratic First time governor in at the years. time. Yeah, exactly. We were in control, and we and I have to say, I'm very proud of what we did. I was a committee chair, and we uh, subcommittee chair actually, and we passed a whole large bevy of progressive legislation, including gun regulation, voting regulation. A lot of what what Youngkin's fighting against is the fact that we made it really easy for people to vote. We had early voting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we did as much as we could under the Constitution with regard to felon voting. We, we believe in the right to vote. We believe in making it easy, mail-in voting. And, and Republicans believe in making voting hard. They want to do everything they can to keep people from the ballot box because, well, democracy scares them a lot. But um, a lot of my bills were voting bills, gun rights bill, animal rights bills. I mean, a whole bunch of things. Yeah. I had uh, 24 bills, I think, of mine passed in that wonderful two years we were in control. So, well, it was... And, and- their goal is to roll it back. It, well, I know. I was going to say it was it was so wonderful that you guys lost it all uh, <laughs> a year or two later. Well, uh, well we didn't lose it all. I want yeah. to be clear. We, we went to divided government, which actually is pretty rare in America today. I don't know how many states, but I'll bet you it's five or less, hmm. have divided government. Today, most states are red or blue. And the fact that the governor and the, uh, the House of Delegates are controlled by Republicans, but a sense still controlled by Democrats, is rare in the country. And again, I think it shows that we're a... Uh, we're a purple or indigo state. And so it really could go either way. And I don't know which way it will go. I wish I could give you some predictions. And well, um, I, 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 adding to all of that is the fact I mentioned that the shakeup in the legislative maps for the uh, for the Commonwealth this year. Why did those come about? And is there any idea what effect that is suspected to have overall on the on the balance of the two chambers? So that's a really long story, and it's old. It's old news, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it brief because it's something I fought against very hard but mm-hmm. lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an amendment on the ballot, a constitutional amendment, 
that uh, shook up the districts. And uh, basically what it did is it allowed the Republican Supreme Court to intervene uh, in case the legislature couldn't agree. And of course, the legislature couldn't agree. Uh, the bipartisan panel couldn't agree. So the Republican uh, Supreme Court designed the districts. So I argued to my fellow Democrats, hey, we shouldn't allow this to happen. And my Democrats said, no, we believe in good government and gerrymandering's wrong. And I said, well, yeah, gerrymandering's wrong. But remember, the Republicans have gerrymandered Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Florida and, and, and virtually every state. Yep. And they way out gerrymandered us. And yep. so we shouldn't unilaterally concede and let the Republicans draw our maps. Thank you. Thank you. We, we I should, agree. We yeah. should have, you know, a national law against gerrymandering so mm-hmm. that it's fair. But I have to tell you, this amendment, except in um, – in Arlington, where they, they voted my way, it passed n- not from Republican votes, but a number of good government Democrats. And and because of these good government Democrats, Elaine Luria, for example, mm-hmm. lost in the House of Representatives. And, and the Republicans have at least one more seat yep. because good Democrats want to do the right thing. And sometimes doing the right things means fighting back the things they throw at you. I hate gerrymandering. I detest gerrymandering. But when the other side is doing it, it's kind of like going in a boxing ring and saying, well, they can kick below the belt, but I can't. I'm pure. Exactly. And, 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 and I just, I'm sorry. Cause these are good people and they met well and, and I oppose gerrymandering, but they need to understand a little bit of realpolitik. And, and that's why we have a huge mess of districts, a whole bunch of uh, incumbents got put with each other, and and it really it's a, kind of like rolling the dice. This will be more new delegates and more new senators, I believe, will be elected in 2023 mm. than any time in the last I don't know 20, 30 years. You're going to see a whole bunch of new people because of the way that we drew the district lines, and so it really is unknown. What's going to happen? It's going to be an exciting election night. It could go either way. Well, you got a funny definition of exciting, Levine. Um, the <laughs> and what does this all mean uh, for for uh, Glenn Youngkin personally? Is there really a chance uh, if this goes well for him Tuesday that he could still jump into the 2024 presidential race uh, yes. at this late date? Yes. Yes, and you should be scared. Okay. Because what Glenn Youngkin is, is he's as radical as Donald Trump, but he's not that stupid. Mm -hmm. Uh, What he does is he pretends to be moderate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he'll come in with his his, uh, his sweater vest. Yes. And he'll be like, I'm a father. And, And... so he doesn't he doesn't scream, you know, the the inanities that Donald Trump does. Right. But but at the same time, he's trying to ban books mm-hmm. in our in our school libraries. He's trying to keep kids from going to the bathroom. He's trying to, uh, you know, he's particularly cruel to, to, to gay and trans kids. Yeah. Um, he wants to prevent the teaching of black history. Oh, we can't talk about slavery because it makes white people feel bad. Um, it happens to be American history. No, but but white people, white kids will feel bad. Well, you know what? I feel bad about slavery, not because I'm white, but because I'm American. It's a sting <laughs> in our history, and it's something that we ought to teach. We ought to teach, you know, what we did, mm-hmm. the Native Americans. I mean, this is our history. So he's a very radical person, but he he he's smooth. I'm not going to deny it. I mean, listen, this is a guy who never held public office in his life before he ran for governor. He's a hedge fund billionaire, mm-hmm. and he threw a bunch of money in, and you know, he outspent everybody. Republicans seem to like that, I guess. So, no, he's very scary. And and one reason why all Americans should help us Democrats win is that if we win in Virginia a week from now, Youngkin's campaign, I think, is toast. However, conversely, if they win, 
I do think he jumps into the race. No, he was his election was a big deal, of course, back in 21. And as you noted, it's sort of a new a new breed of a sort of a kinder, gentler sweater vest face. wearing Republican. Exactly. Right. On the face. Exactly. But now after two years, how has that uh, how has that worked out? How has that worn on the on the folks in the Commonwealth two years on? Is he still popular there? Well, you know, again, are they still the buying only... the sweater vest nonsense? <laughs> we're, we're the only state in the United States um, that does cannot reelect our governor. That's another uh, weird thing. Uh, I can get into the historical, but I don't need to. Uh, we're weird. Forty nine states can reelect their governor. We can't. Right. All right. So he, he's a, your lame duck as governor uh, literally the day you're sworn in. And um, I, I think most people aren't thinking about Yunkin so much anymore. They're already sort of moving on. And because our legislature is split, he couldn't do any terrible things. He did some bad things, but he did only what he could do as governor. Um, you know, when the Democrats were in control, we could do a lot of good things. But mm -hmm. when the legislature is split, you get a whole lot of gridlock. And that's basically what's happened for the last couple of years. Mm. And so he hasn't been able to show Virginia how awful he is because he hasn't been able to succeed in, in banning abortion, which mm -hmm. he wants to do. He hasn't been able to succeed in I mean, banning books is largely done by by local governments. And there's still some law in the books that we progressives passed two years ago that keeps school districts from going so far. So sometimes the problem, it's a weird problem, is the laws we passed when we were in charge are so good that they've constrained Yunkin. And because he didn't have full control of, of House and Senate, he really couldn't overturn too many of them. So I think, I fear that Virginians don't realize how radical he is because he tries to do awful things. We stymie him and then people think he's not that bad. Mm. So I'm nervous. I, I'm not going to lie. With 23% turnout, this election could go either way. I don't know who's angrier. And I, I, I really want to encourage anyone who lives in Virginia, anyone who has a friend in Virginia, you got family, you got cousin, acquaintance, someone you once knew, please let them know there's an election and they need to vote because the turnout is so low that really anyone listening to your, your podcast or your radio show calling in a friend or colleague in Virginia could make the difference, which is why those 3,400 votes really matter. Yep. We had an election in 2017 that was a tie vote. It was yep. a tie vote. They yep. flipped the coin. Yep. And that's why Shelley Simons wasn't seated. And that's why we didn't control the legislature in 2017 because of a flipped coin. By the way, I wrote a law that changes that. Um, the, now the law in Virginia is if it's a tie, you have a brand new election, which is the way it should be. Uh, that's that's my law. But But the point is one vote really can make a difference, particularly in these local races, which decide the legislature. So I just want to urge anyone in Virginia or anyone who knows someone who you think may still live in Virginia, please call them, remind them to vote. We've made it really easy. We have early voting now. You can go vote today, tomorrow, next day. The polls are open. They're close to your house. Get out and vote. Well done, Mr. Levine. Uh, Mark Levine is a uh, former Democratic delegate, three-term Democratic delegate to the Virginia House of Delegates from Virginia's 45th District. And Mark, depending on how things go on Tuesday, we may be calling you uh, sooner rather than later. Other than that, we'll, we'll talk to you in about two more Virginia elections. <laughs> Thanks again for having me, Brad. Thanks, Mark. He's a pistol, isn't he? <laughs> yes, he uh, is. So anyway, I, you know, I probably actually should have asked him about the effect, even though it's not a Virginia issue per se, 
The fact that there's going to be a government shutdown. So just so you can mark your calendars here. Mm, yes. The uh, Let's see. November 7 is Election Day. And then I believe it's 10 days later, the federal government will shut down on November 17 if Republicans in Congress uh, are unable to come up with a spending bill or a continuing resolution to somehow try to keep the government open right. under their... New Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. You've heard of the guy. <laughs> yes. Barely. Anyway, uh, the reason I mentioned that's important to Virginia is because, you know, Virginia, right on the border of uh, of, of the district of uh, Washington, D.C., they have tons and tons of federal workers who live there, defense con- contractors who live there, lobbyists who live in, uh, in Virginia. And so the last couple of weeks or month or so of uh, turmoil in the U.S. House. Will that have any effect on what happens in Virginia next week? I don't know. And the fact is, nobody knows. True. Because both houses are so close, because they've shaken up the maps. I mean, it really kind of feels like a jump ball of sorts uh, in in Virginia next week, which is why he. I'm glad that he was pushing folks so hard. If you're out there listening, if you know people in, in Virginia— to make sure you turn out to vote for this one. Yes, please get the word out. And, you know, I just want to say to all of the activists and organizers that are working so hard to preserve women's rights to control their own bodies, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been holding that one in all day, haven't you? I have been. (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, uh, it will also be uh, critical uh, concerning Glenn Youngkin because even though everybody thinks, oh, Donald Trump is definitely going to be the candidate next year, the the nominee next November. As you know, I've had a feeling that that may not be the case come November 2024. Youngkin, if he jumps into the race... Radical but smooth uh, is what Mark called him. Yeah. Uh, You know, I think uh, Rick, uh, Ron DeSantis used to call himself Donald Trump without the baggage. Yeah. Glenn Youngkin is Ron DeSantis without the Failure of personality. (laughs) So uh, so we'll see. Things could shake up. Keep your eyes on what happens on Tuesday. And if you live somewhere where there is an election, for God's sakes, go out there and exercise your right to vote. Use it before you lose it. Quick break. And we're back with Desi Doyen and our latest Green News report. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi Doyen and I stay on your public airwaves. You're the only one that keeps us here. Thank you. So I'm, uh, I'm I'm looking through the rundown here, Desi Doyen, yeah. uh, at the uh, Green News Report, and <laughs> and up uh, other than uh, the horrible news out of Acapulco, um, by and large, you've got a surprisingly large amount of good news. I thought so. Are you okay? <laughs> we'll find out in our latest Green News Report. Corporate America is not going to force us to choose between good jobs and green jobs. Striking auto workers reach historic deal with big three automakers. 
Staggering loss and damage from Hurricane Otis in Acapulco. Plus, the startup is turning $480 million in federal funding into the nation's first sustainable battery recycling plant. America now has a new EV battery recycling industry. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Who is Mike Johnson? Johnson is an ultra-conservative Republican who, back in 2018, was involved in GOP efforts to overhaul the Endangered Species Act, which is why he's promised that if Republicans give him the gavel, he will jam it in a dolphin's blowhole. Well, that'll serve him right. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I realize a lot of folks have moved on to a lot of other stories already, but uh, what's going on down in Acapulco should not be ignored. No, it should not. In Acapulco, Mexico, the staggering damage from Hurricane Otis is becoming clearer. In an area that has never seen more than a Category 1 storm, Otis rapidly intensified into a Category 5 monster right before landfall last week. As we go to air, at least 45 people are confirmed dead, dozens still missing. The winds were so extreme, they stripped some high-rise buildings down to their open-air frames. Mm. Otis is also likely to be one of the most expensive extreme weather disasters in Mexico's history. Preliminary estimates of insured private sector losses from wind damage alone are as much as $15 billion. Billion dollars, including damage to public infrastructure, could push total losses from Otis to as high as $22 billion. Wow. And because of the rapid intensification of this storm, nobody had time to prepare. It was 12 hours from tropical storm to Category 5 hurricane. In agriculture, extreme weather disasters turbocharged by human-caused global warming have caused nearly $4 trillion in loss and damage in the global agriculture sector since 1990. That's according to a first-of-its-kind comprehensive new report by the U.N.'s Food and Agriculture Organization. The analysis also found disaster-related losses in agriculture have increased in both frequency and scope over the last 30 years and now affect more countries than ever before, with the broadest impacts coming from extreme heat and drought. Hmm. The report's many solutions include cutting climate warming emissions and increasing direct funding to farmers for disaster resilience. Cutting climate warming emissions kind of seems like the solution to a whole bunch of problems these days. Here in the U.S., the United Auto Workers Union has reached a tentative agreement with General Motors, adding two breakthrough deals reached already with Ford and Stellantis. UAW President Sean Fain says the new contract secures historic wage increases and protections, including for workers at electric vehicle and battery plants. Corporate America is not going to force us to choose between good jobs and green jobs. That's a false choice. So we've secured a pathway for thousands of EV and battery jobs to come under our master agreement at master agreement wages. And yet, that's what Republicans and Donald Trump have been claiming was going to destroy the American auto industry, that moving to electric vehicles meant everything was going to be built over in China. Apparently not. Apparently it's going to be built here, and it's going to be built with union labor. Go figure. 
But speaking of those Republicans, new research indicates a partisan divide on EVs may be widening after Republican 2024 presidential candidates and right-wing media began attacking EVs as a culture wars wedge issue. Attacking Elon Musk's industry? What? In a recent poll, only 20 percent of Republicans expressed interest in purchasing an electric vehicle compared to nearly 60 percent of Democrats. Meanwhile, Axios reports on a new poll finding that 40 percent of Americans don't know about federal subsidies of up to $7,500 off the purchase price of electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. Those numbers are even higher among black and Hispanic communities. And of course, lower adoption of EVs could hamper U.S. efforts to cut emissions and air pollution. And finally, America now has an electric vehicle battery recycling industry, thanks to the incentives in President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law. In deep red Kentucky, the Ascend Elements Recycling Plant is now underway and ultimately will recycle and recover battery materials to build 750,000 batteries per year. Here's Ascend Elements CEO Mike O'Cronley on CNBC. We're collecting batteries from the field. Yeah, bringing them back in and, and making new battery materials out of them. The fact that we are getting a certain amount of government support has really also helped catalyze some of the investors, the private money that is coming in. And remember, EV batteries can be recycled and reused. Fossil fuels can't. In deep red Kentucky. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Blue moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. Keep on shining. Oh, Kentucky. Keep on shining indeed. It'll be interesting to see if the Democratic governor of Kentucky, Andy Bashir, wins re-election on Tuesday. Yes. And it's very clever what the Democrats have been doing with all of these uh, new investments. green investments. Yeah. In putting red them in red and helping states. Helping them see how the transition can benefit <clears throat> them, too. And not only that, making it very difficult for Republicans to come to power and kill these projects because they're going to be killing jobs, tons of them. In red states. Yep. Kind of the way uh, the uh, defense industry has carried out its boondoggle for so many years. Now they're doing it for good instead of evil. <laughs> All right, we got to get out. My thanks again to former Virginia delegate Mark Levine. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can always download it or any other show we've ever done for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you kind enough to help us out and help us stay on your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We are 100% listener supported. That means you today. Thanks. You can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter. You will find me at The Brad Blog. We will see you at all of the above. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Blue moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and said goodbye. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. Oh! 
This day in labor history, ghosts and goblins are going door to door to gather up candy. But did you know that some of that candy is made by union workers? In Hershey, Pennsylvania, tagged the sweetest place on earth, you'll find the nation's chocolate center. It wasn't always so sweet for workers, though, who in 1937 tried to win union recognition. Then the company laid off some of the union organizers, claiming it was due to seasonal cutbacks. Outraged, 600 workers began a sit-down strike in the plant. Local dairy farmers, relying on Hershey to purchase their milk grew increasingly angry at the strikers. They joined with workers not participating in the strike and other community members. The angry mob stormed the plant to oust the strikers. 25 strikers were severely beaten and the sit-down strike ended. But the next year, the Hershey workers tried again to form a union. This time, they affiliated with the Bakery and Confectionery Workers International Union of America and established Local 464. They are not the only union members who help make Halloween sweet. Today, Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco, and Grain Millers Union Local 1 in Chicago, Illinois, makes Tootsie Rolls. If your candy of choice is Clark Bar or Thin Mints, you might want to thank the members of Local 348 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Local 125 makes Giardelli chocolate in San Francisco. Unfortunately, things are not always so sweet. In September of 2016, 400 workers at the Just Born Candy Factory in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, went out on strike. The company decided to change their pensions to a 401k for new hires and reduce health care contributions. They make such iconic candies as Peeps, Mike and Ike's, and Hot Tamales. One strike slogan rang out, no pensions, no Peeps.